Welcome to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. We've been telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics all across the world since 2015, and we have over a thousand years of living with T1D on the podcast. The interviews range from incredible feats to everyday victories, and we celebrate them all just the same. Thanks for listening, and if you want to get involved even further, just send me an email at rob at diabeticsdoingthings.com. This episode is sponsored by Health IQ. Uh, what, what's Health IQ? Health IQ is a life insurance agency, but, but with a very modern and cool twist, Health IQ is making life insurance fair by unlocking the value of health consciousness for the 50 million Americans who take responsibility for their health. This is especially relevant for me because as a type 1 diabetic, I've been denied life insurance coverage by other providers. Even though my A1Cs are in range, I eat Whole30 and can still kill guys 10 years younger than me on the basketball court, which is super frustrating. Health IQ can give people exclusive rates through their Health IQ quiz, and they even take into account data points from things like Fitbits and other trackers. You can learn more about Health IQ and get a free quote at healthiq.com DDT, that's D-D-T, short for Diabetics Doing Things. And if you're like, Rob, I am not really in a place where I'm thinking about life insurance, I'll tell you this. When it comes to retirement and planning for when you're not around, there's no time like the present to at least learn what you qualify for. So give it a shot. Go to healthiq.com DDT and get a free quote today. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics from all across the world, uh, and my very special guest today, world traveler, marathoner, just all-around good guy, Ross Baker. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Rob. Good to be here. Uh, Ross, uh, it's it's been funny you know, going back and forth with you over the last few months trying to schedule this interview because you are a fairly busy guy, man. I think a lot of people use the word busy lightly, uh, but you have accomplished a great deal in a very short amount of time. Well, I do like to stay busy. Sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming, but uh, I guess it's better than being idle. So I enjoy it, and I still have the energy and the desire to do it, so it's good. Well, and, and for those who, who don't know, I'll give them a little bit of background. I want to spoil the story here. Um, Ross, you just finished your 50th marathon, in, so you've done one now in all 50 states. So you just crossed Alaska and Hawaii off your list this summer. Correct. Now, is that your 50th marathon overall, or have you done more than that? No, I've done more than that. Um, I've done a total of, I, I, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, 53, because I've done the state of North Carolina a couple of separate times in addition to the 50-state part. Um, I've done, I've completed two 50k which is 31 mile ultra marathons i did one 50 mile ultra marathon and four and a half years ago i completed a hundred mile ultra marathon so that's kind of the total for um for my running you are man i just i'm in awe my, my jaw just hit the floor over here uh i think this this interview is also apropos because it uh it's marathon season um, oh yeah. So New York City Marathon just uh, just got done this past weekend. There's a lot of Type Ones who are running in that. Um, 
you know, through for, through the Beyond type run team. Um, yeah, and, yeah, I saw uh, that. Robin Arzon kind of leading them as well. Um, so yeah, very kind of it's a good time to have this conversation. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us about your diagnosis and your kind of journey with type one. And then, uh, man, I really want to dive into this project, uh, you know, spanning over the last 17 years or so. Sure. Uh, well, like, like Rob said, my name's Ross Baker. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I grew up here, lived here my whole life. Um, I, um, came from a family of diabetes, so to speak. My father, he had type one. Uh, so I grew up watching him take shots and deal with low blood sugars and everything like that. Um, in 1992, I was finishing up my freshman year in college. And uh, in the spring of that year, I had started to get, uh, I, I just noticed I had gotten very tired and um, very disinterested in working out, which I had always been active and uh, noticed I was starting to get thirstier than normal, but I didn't really put all the symptoms together because it was springtime. I was in college. I was staying up late. So I just thought it was the, basically the, uh, the culmination of everything involved with that. But I, I noticed after a week of kind of laying off working out and, uh, and everything that I was having to go to the bathroom more than I normally, and I normally do. And then again, I was having to drink a lot uh, more than I normally do. And so I decided one day I was like, all right, I'm going to kind of break out of this rut. I'm going to go work out at the um, campus gym. And I went to weigh myself before, which I typically did before I went to work out. And I noticed I'd lost about 18 pounds. And I, you know, I, I noticed my, my clothes were baggy and stuff. But again, I was young. I was 19. I wasn't putting everything together probably like I should have. So I left the gym. I didn't work out that day. I left left the gym, went straight uh, back to my dorm, called my father, who, like I said, was a type 1 diabetic, told him the symptoms, and I just asked him, do I, do I have diabetes? And um, he said, well, I think you need to come home. We need to figure out if you do. So he um, scheduled a doctor's appointment with his endocrinologist the next day, and I drove from Chapel Hill because I went to school at University of North Carolina, a two-hour drive back to Charlotte and went to his doctor. Um, they did a, a, a urine test on me, and and I think I had tested at that point over 700, so obviously that my pancreas was no longer functional. Um, so that, that was my diagnosis, and, and I started that weekend taking shots. Like I said, I'd always watched him take shots. But it's one thing when somebody's putting a needle in their flesh, but when you're doing it to yourself, it it just um, you know you have to get you have to uh, kind of take that in and handle that with as much maturity as you can. And so the reality of it really hit me pretty quickly. And since that time, um, you know, obviously I've had to deal with what everybody else has has to deal with. <clears throat> excuse me, from a diabetic standpoint, with low blood sugars and everything like that. Well, and and Ross, you you go you went through something there with diagnosis that I think that um, I I don't want to say not very many people do, but you had somebody with you and your dad who you a could rely on and talk about, hey, I'm not feeling too good. You do uh, you know do you think I have diabetes? And B, you know, once it was confirmed that you had type one, you had somebody kind of there to walk you through. How how instrumental was was your dad sort of in helping you get on your feet, so to speak, uh, early on? 
Well, he was he was invaluable. I mean, because number one, you you know, you're trying to process it, and that is not easy to do. I don't care what your exposure is to the disease. Once you're starting to deal with it from a physiological standpoint with your body and how you, how you feel and that type of thing. Uh, and to have somebody who's walked that path already um, and knows you and can kind of speak to you in a way that you can understand and as opposed to a doctor and nothing against uh, the medical community because they do a wonderful job. It's just being able to talk to somebody in layman's terms about how you're going to feel, what, what it means to, uh, have a low blood sugar, what it means to have a high blood sugar, things like that. Um, so he, he was, and, and you know, he's my dad, he loves me, but he was very, um, very hands-on with that. And, um, it helped me, especially because not only was I diagnosed, but I had to go back to college. So even though I was only a couple hours away, I still had, at that point in time, I was a full blown type one diabetic. I was going to have to get up uh, by myself, just like every other college kid. But now I was deal- dealing with this disease. In addition to it, I was having, I had to go to class. I had to meal plan. I had to determine, uh, going out. Should I drink? How much to drink? Should I not drink? Um, all those types of things. How often do I check my blood sugar? So I was having to do all that away from home. So needless to say, and obviously this was before the internet, but we spent a lot of time on the phone just talking about what I was dealing with day to day. And uh, he was a, he was a great sounding board and gave me a lot of really good feedback. Well, and you, and you bring up a good point um, early on in that answer about the difference between somebody who really knows you and knows how to speak to you and a doctor. Um, do you remember sort of what the rhetoric was from, from your doctor, from your medical provider, maybe diabetes educator, compared to you know how you know how your dad was able to talk to you about it because there's you know everybody knows once you get into this a little bit there's a difference between what they tell you on day one and what living every day with type one is like do you remember at all uh anything indistinct stick out to you about the way they the doctors communicated with you versus your dad sure um she was a wonderful woman the doctor um that i used um at um, college because I I wasn't going home back and forth for every appointment. But one of the things, Rob, that really stuck out was from a dietary standpoint. Now, remember, I'm in college. I'm a a guy in college with a bunch of guys. So obviously there's a lot of pizza, there's beer, there's all the typical things you associate with living a college life. Now, I knew that was going to have to change. And to be perfectly honest, I, I already lived a fairly healthy life and tried to. Uh, especially given the circumstances. But one of the things that really stuck out to me was when I met with my doctor when we were talking about food and portion control and stuff like that. She said, you're not really going to be able to eat pizza anymore. And I was like, what do you mean I can't eat pizza anymore? I mean, college kids live off pizza. She said, well, because of the carbohydrates and obviously because the sugar associated, you know, with bread and everything like that, uh, the crust, you know, you might be able to eat a piece or two and I, at that point, I could eat a whole pizza. I mean, it wasn't right. nothing for me to sit down. So that kind of thing, you know, I would go to my dad and say, is this true? I mean, because, again, I had grown up with him. And he's like, no, it's not true. She's she's basically trying to give you a theoretical way to address this. 
But reality is you're going to have to have a piece of pizza once in a while, or you're going to want a piece of pizza once in a while, or three pieces of pizza. But it's all about how you manage whatever you take into your body. And he wasn't a very active person, my dad, in terms of like he didn't run and exercise a lot. I mean, he did, you know, uh, yard work and things like that. Um, but, But he was able to really sit down and say, okay, you know, when you cut grass or when you're out in the yard or when you're washing your car, when you have to do errands, this is what you kind of need to do. And some of it, Rob, was listening to him and getting good information from him. Some of it was learning, too, as I went on, that the way he handled it was not necessarily the way I wanted to. He was really um, big on, and again, this is, we're talking, um, when I was growing up now, 30-something years ago, when he was really in the, the midst of his diabetes, so to speak, and what I was observing, his response to low blood sugars was to drink a Pepsi and to eat a Snickers bar. Well, when I was in college, I didn't really want to eat junk food to fix that low blood sugar. Um, so then I was like, well, I'm, you know, and he, that he would say, that, hey, this is the best way to do it. Well, but then you have that seesaw that goes back the other way. Right. And then I was like, well, I'm going to try to find another way. So he was good in that, that respect. Um, and I appreciated everything that my doctor tried to convey to me. But again, a lot of it was just trial and error. Well, and it's, uh, you brought something up in terms of the principle and addressing the principle and try to give you rules to follow. I think especially as kids or teenagers, uh, you know, my, my doctors were very clear. It was interesting, like my pediatric endocrinologist um, at age 16 told me, you know, you can never, never drink, never do drugs. You run the risk of dying. You know, basically like no, no middle ground at all, right? Exactly. Um, and I think at, it's not, a, not necessarily a scare tactic. It's just as an overgeneralization. And I don't necessarily think it's wrong because I think what it does do is help you approach those situations with caution. Um, but again, you know, you, you look at those, you look at those things like, you know, don't eat a pizza and you think, well, that's crazy. I want to eat a pizza. Um, and I'm, it was very similar to you. I could easily eat a whole pizza when I was in college cause I was 21 and I could process basically anything. Sure. Um, and you know, it's just, uh, it's just one of those interesting things that is sort of, as you spend time with the disease, um, and a chronic illness, like don't compare your day one to somebody else's day a hundred, you know, or, or a thousand even. Because, you know, like your dad uh, said, you know, he the best way to him to treat a low blood sugar may not be the best way for you. And you guys are as closely related as you can be. So it's just, you know, we're all so different and there's so many different factors associated with living a life in general. But, you know, uh, a life of type one, especially. Yeah, I I agree. Um, And and back then, too, your extent of information was pretty pretty local i mean there 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 wasn't the uh benefit of having the internet and instantly be able to get on and have contact with so many people who were dealing with the same issues or to get other information so you really did have to rely on in my case somebody i knew who had it my dad and the medical professionals and um and, but a lot of it ultimately just came down to saying, okay, this is my body. What can I 
can I do, can I not do, what works, what doesn't, and I kind of became my own uh, lab experiment. Well, and I think that's part of it too. You got to be willing to to fail a little bit, um, some, and not necessarily all the time, but just try things that maybe don't work. Uh, just get used to that, you know, using yourself sort of as your own little lab experiment, own little science project. Um, what do you remember anything specific about, uh, you know, early on about testing those things and trying different things? Well, for me, a lot of it was I was always so worried. <laughs> about um i was always so worried about low blood sugar that i would overeat and i gained weight um at the time i actually weigh less now than i did in college at the time i weighed about 180 pounds and i got up to like 190 195 because um i didn't know anything about adjusting insulin so whatever they told me to take that's what i took and at the time it was too much because they were basing it on somebody who wasn't as active as I was. Um, and then what I was finding is I would be in the middle of a workout and I'd have to stop and go eat because here, here my blood sugar. And, and I wasn't even running at that time. I was just basically going to the gym, working out, you know, getting on the uh, elliptical machine or whatever. Um, so I was, was gaining weight and, that part really aggravated me because I was carrying this extra weight and that was frustration, frustrating. And I always felt like I had to eat. I couldn't do something as simple as go play, pick up basketball with my friends. I was like, I got to eat before I do that. And I got to eat afterwards. And everything seemed just consumed with food. And then I realized that, you know, you can actually make the adjustment with this insulin without having to call a doctor. And so then it became uh, a matter of tweaking my NPH insulin that I was using at the time. And then I found, wow, I don't have to eat as much because my body's not uh, going into uh, hypoglycemia or anything like that. So that was one of the things for me that was just a big thing is meal planning and just being able to tweak some of the stuff I had. Well, and there's there was no, at that point, right, there was no sliding scale right there was no it was just the one you know you had the one ratio of insulin that you used for your meals and that was how many carbs you ate right right yeah i don't remember that at the time there being a sliding scale for it yeah well and you know i think that's something that we maybe today take for granted um just because we don't know what we don't know um about living with type one early on um and and you know how much research and technology plays into just the day-to-day treatment not not even you know as it relates to devices or cgms or things of that nature um you know just the research on hey you know when you're high you can give yourself an adjusted ratio or this is your carb to insulin ratio those things just didn't exist back then right correct um so ross i think you know this is this is a good transition now because i think you know you're getting in you're getting out of college you're living through your college years with type one. Um, you just finished your 50 marathons running a, running a marathon in all 50 states. So one marathon in every state, which even saying that is just incredible. For you, where, where did that start? Uh, you mentioned that uh, it took 17 years to do that. Where did the idea come from? All right. Well, it's, it's interesting, or at least I think it is. Um, I had um, I graduated from college in '95, 
So came out, joined the world, the work world, like everybody else. I had, I was wasn't anything more than a weekend athlete at that point because uh, I played football and baseball all through high school and played some club sports in college. Um, and um, so I was just a guy going to the gym, trying to stay in shape. Um, I had met my now ex-wife. I met my wife at that time, and we started dating. Um, settled down and before you know it I was just you know just like everybody else going to work coming home at night eating stuff like that I never got out of shape per se but I just I was kind of bored because um, I was so used to having uh, challenges I had been an athlete all through my childhood so I like pursuing things and accomplishing things I had never shown any interest at all in running um, just it just honestly seemed very boring to me so i was because i was always used to playing sports um so anyway i um i had a friend who i was going to church with and his dad was a runner and uh so i started talking to his dad one day and he uh he was like you you could run a marathon and i was like a marathon that's just insane i mean i, I knew how far i knew how far a marathon was and I, number one i didn't like to run but two um I didn't think that was achievable if I had, if I didn't have diabetes, much less if I did. Uh, so he was like, why don't you just sign up for the New York City Marathon? Because he, he, he ran that every year. He said, just sign up for the lottery and see if you get in. And if you get in, um, we'll go and run it. And I had never been to New York before. And so I talked to my wife at the time. I was like, hey, you know, if we could do this and we could make a a vacation out of it and go to, you know, tour the Empire State Building and Statue of Liberty and all that. So anyway, so I signed up um, and I got in, which was kind of rare because it's a lottery system. And uh, so then it was like, okay, I, I, I have to start training for this. So I talked to him, my friend, his name's Ron, and I was like, well, I need a training plan to run a marathon. And so he he had had plenty of experience by that time. Uh, he had run several marathons and so he was a good resource for me and a lot of it was just okay this week I got to run 10 miles so I uh, would go out and run 10 and it's just like anybody who trains for uh, any kind of endurance event you each time you're realizing wow I'm doing more than I thought I could actually do it's just coming in increments and so I trained the whole summer of 2000 I was ready to go um, the race was going to be November 5th of 2000. So it's been 17 full years since that happened. But anyway, we get to New York. I'm at the run, the race expo and I happened to see a guy walk by with a 50 States and DC shirt on. And for those who don't know, if you, if you run a marathon in all 50 States and DC, Washington, DC, there's a, there's a club that you basically, you participate in and, um, you, you can get a shirt and, you know, they have like, uh, things where they have get-togethers. It's basically just run a running association, a group. But I saw the shirt. Now, I asked my friend Ron, I was like, what is that? He said, that's for somebody who's run a marathon in all 50 states in D.C. Well, I, growing up, never had never traveled. We pretty much, we had, had a modest uh, lifestyle, so I didn't get to go to a lot of places. And I was like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Um, didn't, didn't really think much of it other than that. Um, but, 
and I finished New York. And after I finished New York, I came home and was like, okay, what's next? And I felt a really strong pull to do it. I was like, well, I, I can, you know, I can use this as a way to travel and see some cool places. And I, I really loved the feeling of accomplishment when I had finished New York. So I was like, well, maybe, maybe I could do it again, see what it's like. And slowly uh, I started to, to go through States and, um, the ones especially that I uh, could drive to and, um, before you know it, my first year, I had seven states. And I was like, wow, this is something that could actually be doable. Um, I did not think anything else more up to that point. But then I was like, I'm just going to try and see how far I can get with it. So that's well, basically what, what I've done every year. Well, I, okay. So first of all, like you, you, you breeze past. I want to talk about what your experience was like on your first marathon as a type. Okay. One. Cause that's, yeah. I mean, cause I think that's super impactful, but then not only that, you felt so good. You ran six more that year. Uh, so you did seven marathons your first year, having never trained for a marathon before in your life. Is that like, that seems to me uncommon. Well, it, yeah, I, I would say, yes, I don't have anybody, any basis of comparison other than myself, I would say this, a lot of people, when they get into running, it can become a, a, an addictive thing and people really get caught up in it. And I think that's somewhat of the way I was and the way I felt about it after I finished New York. And, and it's kind of like, I mean, for people who don't run to run the New York city marathon as your first marathon, it's like winning the super bowl. And then you get to play the regular season in football. Um, and so New York City was such a great experience, and it, it can become addictive. Plus, it, you know, it feels good. I enjoyed everything associated with it. Um, but to answer your question, Rob, yeah, six or seven in one year, it's a lot. It's a lot from a training standpoint, from a recovery standpoint. It's a lot from a time standpoint, just being able to schedule the races. And I had a life. I had a job. I had a marriage. I had, you know, all that kind of stuff. So everything had to fit together. Yeah. I think, you know, just the commitment alone to one race, um, I think, you know, having followed quite a few of the, uh, of the runners on the beyond type run team fairly closely over the last six months, you know, preparing adequately for a marathon or any endurance event is a, is a pretty significant time investment. You know, oh yeah. Uh, apart from, you know, the physical and the preparation and the logistics, like, just the time invested in preparing your body to run that distance. No, I totally agree with you. It it, it is it is definitely an undertaking for sure. It's and then a, a lot of it, it's almost like they say, you know, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? It's a, it, you know, it fits that obviously fits that uh that adage. So well, it does. Go ahead, I'm well, sorry. The one thing I, well, the one thing I would say is when you're training for a marathon, every long run you do is your marathon. I mean, until you obviously run the full race, but you know, most people when they're training for their first, I mean, they've never run 10 miles before. So to go out and run 10 miles by yourself, that's kind of a, you know, that's a big deal emotionally and psychologically as well as physically. Well then before you know it, you're out doing training runs of 18 miles and you know, you're out running, three three and a half hours by yourself or if you're lucky enough you'll have people to run with a running group or something but it's still a lot um and, and to be able to 
take all that in physically and, and psychologically and again it's it's great you feel great but then it's like oh wow i've got to add more to it i've got to add more to it till you get to the 26 so it, it is a tall tall task for sure and for you you know throwing in the diabetes aspect especially back in 2000 because i imagine your uh you know treating diabetes hadn't evolved super significantly at that point um what were some of the challenges that you had to kind of overcome? You mentioned that you didn't have any complications with your first race, um, and I, or maybe even your last race. But that that led me to, to develop the question of, were there specific races throughout where you did have some challenges with your type 1 diabetes? Sure. Well, I'll talk briefly about New York, and then I'll, I'll sure. talk about some of the other races. Um, the thing about doing, of course – and this goes for anybody in any capacity with their taking on something new is the fear of the unknown. Um, and I, I was running with my friend Ron, so I knew I would have somebody there with me. But again, I was the only diabetic, um, running around me. So I didn't have anybody. My dad certainly had never done anything like that. So everything I was taking in firsthand, I didn't have a lot of, uh, resources to draw from in terms of that. But, my biggest fear with New York is you're you're running this city like what if my blood sugar really drops what do, how do I get food and drinks now obviously you know marathons have aid stations but a lot of these aid stations they'll have Gatorade and water but they're not going to have like a hamburger or candy bars or something that's more substantial if that's what you need so I I realized that I was going to have to um, carry food with me and, um, you know, obviously it had to be something that could accommodate running. So I had, you know, found things like trail bars, candy bars, um, uh, cliff bars, which has kind of been my go-to throughout because they don't melt as much as like a candy bar would or something like that. Uh, but I got through New York okay, um, and I made a conscious effort in that race. I didn't take my shot, that morning shot, until about three-fourths of the way through the race now um, obviously it ran my blood sugar up higher than what you would like for it to but I was determined I was going to err on the side of caution and if that meant it was high and it would have to I'd have to spend the rest of the afternoon getting it down so be it I just wanted to be able to finish the race on my feet now having gotten through New York um, some of the challenges that I started to experience after that was there's you you have to juggle two things physically you have to juggle being a diabetic but you also have to juggle being a person putting yourself through this torture for four and four and a half hours um and i'll give you an example you you know you're running a race where it gets warm okay well if your blood sugar's high you may need stuff to drink in order to prevent from being dehydrated but do you want to grab the gatorade because if you do, that's full of sugar. That's just going to jack your sugar up even more. So then you have to start making decisions as you're running. When I get to that next aid station, am I going to grab a water? Am I going to grab a Gatorade? Do I need to eat? Do I need to check my blood sugar? Um, all those types of things where your your mind's constantly working as you as your mind's really in overdrive as your body's starting to break down physically in a lot of ways. Um, and I've had. Obviously, I've had some interesting 
scenarios come up. I, my uh, second state after New York, I ran North Carolina, and my blood sugar actually got low during the course of that race, so low that I stopped during the, during the race. I left the course because it was right on the course, went into a fried um, a fast food restaurant here in Charlotte called Bojangles, which is like fried chicken and biscuits and stuff. Right. I went in, went in, ordered a large fry and sweet tea, came back out on the course, finished the, the fries, drank the tea, got back on the course so I could finish the race because I needed carbohydrates really bad. Um, and that that didn't happen that often, thankfully. Um, but But like I said, a lot of it was just juggling and the management of of races in terms of how was I feeling was I feeling good some days I felt great like I when I ran the Disney marathon this was 15 years ago I didn't have uh, any any issues with low blood sugar or high blood sugar throughout the whole day I finished feeling good the whole time never had to eat midway through the race or anything like that other races there were several times where I would have to stop and walk just so I could eat or just so I could drink or just so my body could kind of calibrate and figure out, you know, just how good or bad I was with things. Thankfully, I never in my entire time had an issue with hypoglycemia to the point where I was unable to finish a race, where I became it became hazardous to my health. I always kept food and drinks on me even during the course of a marathon. And, and I think that's really important to to think about in terms of not necessarily just marathon, you know, running a marathon or any sort of long distance activity, but just in terms of the uh, overcoming any obstacle, right, or getting through any sort of, uh, you know, rigorous day or whatever life may throw at you. Do you attribute, you know, your ability to have done that more in your willingness and ability to prepare or in your ability to sort of take things in stride and hop into a Bojangles right off the course and correct a low blood sugar if you need to, or stop and walk and give yourself a, um, a, a dose of insulin or something like that. Um, is it just your sort of natural inability to just deal with obstacles as they come in or more in preparation? Well, I, I think the, obviously the more you prepare, the the it, it definitely shrinks that area of fear of and, and anxiety. That being said, you cannot predict how you're going to feel. I mean, like I said, I've uh, obviously I've run fifty one of these races now. With when you include DC, every race is different. I mean, I have a a method or a plan um, to what I'm doing each race and you know as time went on uh i got i got where i felt comfortable with what i was doing and what into my body knew what we, what i was doing so uh the eating beforehand or the getting ready or the adrenaline the morning of things like that um it it was prepared for that because of the experience had happened so many times i do think one thing that has always benefited me uh, just in general, whether it's been marathon running or bike riding or whatever, is I, I feel like I'm pretty good at, at when I'm in the moment of whatever it is, not letting it overwhelm me and just try to process and think through, okay, 
what's uh, what's the next step or what do I need to do or what's the priority right now? Is it, you know, is it so bad that I can't keep running or am I okay till I get to the next aid station? Do I need to pull pull off right now and eat a bar that's in my pack? Um, you know, just little things like that, just the same way as, okay, it's hot right now, so probably I need to drink more water than I've been drinking and or things like that. Um, I do think a lot of times people can really undermine themselves with uh, with worrying too much about things that they can't control until the time gets there. Uh, I do think you plan, you schedule, diabetics have to live by that. We don't have, unfortunately, the flexibility that, that people with good pancreases do, but um, there's only so much you can plan and schedule, and then after that, you kind of just have to be ready to bounce when it's time to bounce. Right, and I think, you know, I always kind of make it a little bit of a joke about, you know, being a, a good or, you know, diligent diabetic is similar to being a good or diligent Boy Scout. You just got to be prepared. Uh, and it just adds one step to every other kind of activity, whether that's travel, whether that's exercise, whether that's eating. All right, we're going to try something different here at about the midway point of this interview. We talked about it at the beginning of the podcast, but I just wanted to give another plug to Health IQ. Really, Health IQ is just like car insurance, but for life insurance. And let me explain. It's like if you're a safe driver, you get more competitive rates. That makes sense. Uh, Health IQ just takes into account an overall healthy lifestyle and passes those savings along. It's that simple. Plus, it's good for you. The American Heart Association reports that an overall healthy lifestyle is associated with nearly 60% lower risk of mortality by cardiovascular disease. That's always good news. So get the rewards for living that healthy lifestyle. Check out healthiq.com DDT today. And now we'll get back to the episode. So somewhere along the, you know, the journey of, you know, you're crossing off marathon after marathon after marathon. You mentioned that you've done some ultra marathons in there as well. When did the the goal of 50 states or the, the finish line start to really uh, materialize for you? Um, hmm. Well, I, I think that's a really good question because I think it happened kind of in waves. Uh, the initial wave for me was the the states that I was able to to uh, complete driving because uh, so many of the races initially I was driving to the states running and driving home and then when I realized that you know I'm going to have to start flying to some of these places uh, like California Montana you know places like that so then once I got started getting on the plane to take these trips uh, I mean I'm middle class so uh, you know, it was very important to me if I if I went, I wanted to be able to finish. Nothing against uh, Iowa or um, uh, you know Illinois or some of these other states, but I didn't want to have to keep making the same trip to finish a race. I'd like to be able to get it the first time I get it, just because my funds were limited. But then once I started make the the flights and I was coming home, um, and then I, of course once I reached the middle point. Uh, I was like, okay, I'm halfway through. I've I've done 26 at this point. I've got another 25 to go. Um, so much of it, though, is you're just caught up in the process. 
okay, what, what, what marathon do I need to get this year? Or what states can I do this year? Or what works in my schedule? And you get so caught up in that, you don't really think about the finish line too much. But last year, I did Montana in June, and I did uh, Wyoming in September, Labor Day weekend. And when I finished, um, when I finished uh, Wyoming, it, it really hit me. I've done every state in the contiguous you know, United States. The only thing left is obviously Alaska and Hawaii. And when you start to look at your hand and you're, you can count what's left on two fingers, I mean, it, it really, you know, it's, it's exciting, but it's, it's humbling at the same time, too. And so from last September until really now, uh, so much of it was, please, Lord, just allow me to be healthy. Don't have any I- injuries. Don't have anything that's going to set me back. Because I started planning last November and December, you know, uh, travel-wise, because these trips were going to be expensive considering where they were, how I was going to get there, the, you know, when I was going to do the races and things like that. Um, so, it, it, like I said, it happened in waves, but last year, when I left Wyoming is when it really started to take hold. This is really, you know, I, the finish line, I can see it. I can really see it now, and... And thankfully, I was able to reach it. No, that's incredible. And I think even when uh, you and I first started our dialogue, you were, uh, I think you had your trips booked to Alaska and Hawaii. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, now seeing, and you mentioned earlier that it hasn't really all the way sunk in for you. I want to I wanna focus on something This is maybe a little bit different. It's not so tactical. It's not so race-driven as much as it is the endurance of a long creative project uh, or a long goal, uh, you know, because I think too often, uh, especially young people can be focused on short-term wins and uh, even things that seem long, like uh, like a college, <laughs> earning your college degree is only four years, right? Sure. Um, at the time, it seems like a long time. Uh, 17 years you worked to, to get to that t-shirt. Um, what were were there low moments where you you thought you know what I I'm tired I need to break I'm, not, I'm this isn't maybe this isn't what I really wanted is it, what what were those moments like and then how did you how did you talk yourself and what kind of conversations did you have with yourself with your family to continue and push through? Well, um, the good thing I will say I mean I had low moments in 2009 I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and right in the middle of training for a race and um, obviously had to deal with that. Um, I was still able to accomplish, complete the race that I was in the process of training for, but then I had to deal with cancer as well as diabetes. Thankfully, thyroid is not as severe as uh, many other forms of cancer, so it wasn't something that completely sidelined me. And um, I've had a couple of deaths in my family, including my father and my stepfather that, you know, have sidetracked me periodically to answer your question though. I never, because I was very fortunate to not have any running injuries or anything that really debilitated me from training. The main thing was just not, not overwhelming myself with this need to get it done by a certain time. Cause when I started out in 2000, my goal was 
do five races a year, 10 years, boom, you're already done, you know, like a math equation. Well, that life doesn't work that way. Hmm. Um, and then when you realize that, yeah, I'm only going to be able to get two races in this year. And, but, but my attitude was, well, I got two more races in. It's better than not getting anything in. Um, just like that year I got seven races in and completed those seven. That's fantastic, but, you know, you can't keep that up, especially because during this, these 17 years I've gotten married, I've gotten divorced, I've had two children that I've had to raise in that time, in addition to the health issues and obviously working and everything else. So my attitude was just, whatever I can get this year, great. And I was very fortunate in that every race I signed up to do, physically I was able to finish. Uh, I think I would have become a lot more dejected and frustrated if I had flown to Colorado to do the race there and, uh, you know, couldn't finish at mile 14 and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to come back to Colorado again. When am I going to do that? That type of thing. So because I was able to finish every race that uh, I started, um, it made it so much easier when I came home. There wasn't that feeling of, oh my gosh. Now, there were times, yeah, for sure, I didn't want to have to think about, okay, what am I doing um, this year? Oh, I'd like to not train or whatever. But I also enjoyed it. I enjoyed that feeling of accomplishment. And I enjoyed the release that, that running provided. Um, so it it became something that I really looked forward to. And that's why I told you when I crossed the finish line in Hawaii, I won't miss the pain of that uh, because it, you know marathon d- does take a lot out of you. But... Um, but I love that feeling of accomplishment and achievement and everything that came with it. So, um, you know, it, it, it never reached a point where I wanted to quit. Um, there was definitely points when I wanted to take a break, but nothing that ever pushed me to the point of saying, no, I'm just going to give up. I'm done with this. Well, and I think that's interesting because a, I think you, it, it just shows that you were doing the right thing that you were doing what you wanted to do and you had truly had a passion for it and a love for it. But also you were doing it the right way. Um, you know, there's no way you could have guaranteed at the beginning that you would finish every race except to prepare to finish every race. Um, and I think sometimes we can cut corners or we can try to force things in when they maybe we're not ready, but by, you know, executing the plan, you know, uh, plan the work and work the plan uh, you can really accomplish something if you look back after after a long time. Do you know how many miles? I mean, obviously, you know, twenty five, uh, you know, twenty six point two times fifty three plus a couple extra big miles. Do you know how many competitive miles that you've run? Yeah, I did. I did figure that uh, before I finished Hawaii because I was just curious. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, just in terms of the states. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The total is thirteen hundred and thirty six miles. 1336 miles that's a pretty yeah. long road trip yeah 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 i would say so 17 years worth of it uh ross man you are your outlook is just so refreshing i uh well thanks i i have you know it's rare to meet somebody with uh you know such a positive outlook and and also uh, you know with so much uh accomplishment you know you're a very humble and very easygoing and very easy to talk to guy i'm really glad to have you uh as as an advocate in our community um i asked this question to all my guests uh and as somebody who's been in a lot of airports over the last 17 years i think uh i'm interested to, to hear your answer i think it'll be really good um so the context is important 
you're in an airport and you got about 30 seconds before they close the door to your gate. Um, but you run into somebody who's either recently been diagnosed with type one or is struggling, uh, with their type one diabetes. What's the one thing you tell them before you get on that flight? Because you can't miss the flight. Whatever's on the other end of the flight, you got to be there for. What's the one thing you tell them? It's not a death sentence. It's a life sentence. And it's just how you choose to live it that makes the difference. Man, that, I've never heard that before. That's, uh, that's incredible. I love the wordplay too. That's fun. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I because um, just to fill you in, I I did a uh, camp back this past summer for um, kids with type one diabetes, and and these are kids that are anywhere from <clears throat> six, seven years old all the way up to teenage. And I had a girl who had recently been diagnosed. Uh, she was thirteen, if I remember correctly, and she came up to me after I did my little presentation. She said. Um, she said, does it ever get better? And I was like, well, what do, you, what do you mean? I know what she meant, but I wanted to hear her say it. And she said, the way you feel and everything else. And I was like, it doesn't get better, but you get better at it. And as long as you get better at it, you can control it. You can handle things. Now, again, there's always, I mean, I have I have really crappy sugar days, Rob. I mean, there are days where I don't handle things very well. There are days when... I do an amazing job, you know, I mean, it's just, that's unfortunately the nature of being a diabetic. It can be a little bit precarious at times. Um, but it's just like anything with life, you develop a proficiency and how to handle situations, how to handle food, how to handle exercise, how to handle all that. Now for her at that age, everything seems like a snowball effect and it's running downhill at her. But that, you know, that, that playing field levels out as you get older, um, at least to the point where you can figure out how to how to navigate it. I mean, when I think back to where I was in college now, I mean, it's just like walking through a forest in the dark. I, I you know, I just had to feel around to see if I could get where I needed to get. Whereas now, I I have at least I think a pretty clear understanding of what's going on and what's not, and can anticipate and anticipate things a lot better than I could back then. But the thing, and that's why the di- running the marathons was important to me with the diabetes, was I just refused to quit living my life. And I go back to what that doctor in, uh, in college told me when she told me, well, you can't eat pizza anymore. And uh, I was thinking, well, uh, that's not acceptable. <laughs> so maybe I'm just stubborn. I don't know. But I was like, well, I'm going to try to find a way to make this work as long as it doesn't hurt me. And thankfully, I was able to do that. And I had, I've just been very blessed during this entire time with people that have always been in my corner, uh, with the doctors I've had, with uh, the family members I've had, with the people that have really supported me. So uh, I, I certainly haven't done it alone. I've been very thankful for that. Well, you know, Ross, you uh, you continue to surprise me with uh, with how giving your heart is and how inspiring your message is and uh, and just how relatable it is to I think you know a lot of conversations that go on. Um, I want to make sure to be respectful of your time, but I do want to ask you one question uh, sure. before we finish. Um, you know, you've lived now for you know a good amount of time with type one diabetes through you know a lot of. Uh, really dramatic changes, not only in treatment, but in education and uh, in research. Uh, 
other than a cure, you know, what are you what are you hopeful for um, from uh, a type one diabetes perspective? Um, you know, I think it's easy to say, you know, we're I think we're all you know one way or another hoping for a cure, but what what things uh, kind of give you hope as we look towards the next few years? Well, the thing that gives me hope is just the fact that people communicate about having the disease and the issues that are associated with it so much better. Social media obviously is wonderful for that. I follow a lot of people on Instagram uh, who are diabetics that talk about you know their issues and what they deal with and follow me in return and stuff like that. And I think just having that information, you don't live in the dark of uncertainty um, with your situation in your life. Now, as far as uh, what I like or what I hope to see, I mean, uh, you know, and, and again, I, I'll be honest, I don't keep up with all the medical uh, things that are going on to the level of other diabetics. Um, but I know there's a lot out there and a lot of uh, things that uh, some of these companies are doing to hopefully further the idea of, you know, pancreas implants and stuff like that. I mean, um, mainly I just really want Rob for people to be able to realize and, and you see it now because I think a lot of the companies really try to steer towards this. Um, and when I say companies, I'm talking about companies that make the products, whether it's insulin pumps and things like that to say, these are not going to be people sitting on on couches for the rest of their life checking their blood sugar that's part of who they are but you know diabetics want to run they want to uh, ski they want to travel they want to do all these things associated with life and let's make something that accommodates that and i think a lot of that it really encourages you to to live that type of life where like i said when i when i was diagnosed they they looked at it and they viewed it as a, as a very restrictive and limiting thing. Um, so I know that's kind of a vague answer, but um, that's the one thing I would really point to that's encouraged me is just there's so many healthy diabetics out there that are doing so many awesome things, and it's just so wide known, widely known now as opposed to, wow, I never knew that happened or whatever. So that's one reason why I like to get out of my story. I don't care about it's not about how great I am with anything. It's just I want to show people you can do a really some really cool stuff with diabetes, and it doesn't have to be marathons. Um, but you can, you don't have to sit on the sidelines for the rest of your life. No, I love that, and uh, you know that's a big part of what we're doing here. And uh, we're lucky to have you and uh, and be a part in sharing your journey. Um, and man, what just an expi- inspiring message. Um, you know, I, I also believe we're in sort of a T1D renaissance where oh, I agree. Um, yeah. there's just all these great stories and great people and personalities out there to latch on to and just let you know that, you know, you don't have to be alone and uh, that you don't have to sit on the sideline. And whereas, you know, even uh, 12, 13 years ago when I was diagnosed, you know, there was no way to find those people. So, you know, I think there's a lot of negative messaging out there about social media and and the internet and being too connected. But, you know, in the T1D world, we're kind of on the other end of that. I'm really grateful for that. I totally agree. It's, uh, and, and, and I think it's something that will just continue to grow, um, especially with diabetics in terms of physical activity and breaking kind of the, I think what's almost been a stigma of, yeah, this just isn't something you can do. Whereas now people realize it's not the barrier they thought it was. That's right. 
Um, Ross, let me ask you one last question. Did you get that sure. shirt? Did they give you your 50 states shirt? No, I haven't. I've got to reach out to them. I haven't done it yet. Well, um, when you when you get it, be sure to let us know, and uh, so we I will definitely want to share that. That's a strong thing, and you earn that thing. Get that shirt. Oh yeah, I agree with you. I plan on it. Well, good. Uh, and if uh, our listeners want to find you online, what's a good place? What's uh, how can they reach out to you? Well, if they want to find me online, they can uh, just look for me on Facebook, Ross Baker, and like I said, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, Instagram, Ross Baker twenty four. Um, that those are the main places and uh, they can message me or whatever any questions they have don't hesitate to ask well good and uh, i'll obviously tag you and include you in all the show notes so ross baker thanks so much for taking the time really appreciate you coming on it was a pleasure to have you thanks rob i appreciate it